Hey everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Campus Safety Voices podcast. My name is Amy Rock and I'm the Senior Editor for Campus Safety Magazine. And today we'll be diving into how the coronavirus pandemic has affected both student and non-student homeless populations. Last March, I spoke to Sergeant Tony Summerland with the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Police about how the department started its homeless outreach unit back in 2019 in order to connect both affiliated and non-affiliated homeless populations to available resources within the community. Since the pandemic has significantly altered nearly every aspect of daily life, we wanted to catch up with Sergeant Summerland to discuss how it has affected the unit's ability to provide services to homeless populations. We discussed the pandemic's effects on both students and non-students who are faced with homelessness, how the unit has worked around those challenges, and programs that have been put in place to support them. We also spoke about how the unit has seen an influx in individuals seeking more mental health supports, which has been a significant part of the conversation surrounding the pandemic and its short-term and long-term effects. Here's our conversation. And so we, we talked about this in our conversation last year, uh, but can you just give an overview of how and when the department's homeless outreach uh, unit was started and what their main focus and role is? Yeah, so um, the director, uh, Adam Garcia, he started it right when he came on board in 2019. So we merged um, our agencies. So it was two different agencies. It was um, CSN Police Department, which is College of Southern Nevada, and then UNLVPD, so University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And so right when the merge happened, when they merged the two agencies into one, which were now known as uh, University Police Services Southern Command, because there's a Northern Command, um, he decided that you know we really needed this the area that most of our campuses sit in um, because we're spread out across the Las Vegas Valley do have a homeless population whether it's affiliates or non-affiliates and when I'm saying non-affiliates those are people that aren't necessarily faculty staff or students um, but they're still part of our campus community because our campuses are open to the public so it started back in 2019 um, and the unit at that time consisted of myself and former officer Tori, um, who has uh, since no longer works for the department. And it was just us, it was a two person show. And um, so we went out into the community, we built relationships with most of the resources that are already available. Um, but we just needed to figure out how we were going to incorporate what they were already doing um, into what we needed to build and kind of build those relationships with those resources on the outside, if you will, um, and see how um, we could benefit from each other for what we were doing on the law enforcement side and kind of switching that into more of a resource given or resource driven side um, and then utilizing those areas where we knew we could send people to or um, uh, we can call, like phone a friend. Um, and so it started back in 2019. It was just two of us. Um, and then it became one of us. So it was just me for a little while. Um, and now I have a new partner and I'm hoping to add two more if I'm lucky. Um, that'd be awesome to see this unit grow because there's definitely a need for it. Um, but we've partnered with a lot of different um, community-based resources um, that are available, but we've also partnered with um, Metro PD also has a hot team. There's is a homeless outreach team as well. And so we've kind of partnered up with them and we're getting ready to do a couple of cleanups with them where we go out and do a lot of resource driven contacts within the community. So I'm really excited to see what that looks like for us. Um, now that 
hopefully COVID doesn't damper that. Um, Cause COVID has definitely put a damper on a lot of the stuff that we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, especially for some of these community-based resources too, because they had to um, not necessarily operate on a face-to-face, -face, um, you know, they, it used to be open door, everybody could come in. And then out here, when the governor shut everything down in Las Vegas, that included those places where we were normally taking people or sending people to. Um, and so those that maybe didn't have transportation or a way to get there, even if they could, those facilities were shut down. Um, and so it was trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now that those facilities aren't open and running due to the governor's orders, which everybody needed to follow at that time. So um, now that we're in 2021, we're definitely seeing a decrease in COVID cases, which is awesome. They've offered that, you know, vaccine, you know, nationwide. So um, they started with a lot of essential employees um, and hopefully they get to where they're offering it similar to like the flu shot. Anybody could go get it, which would be amazing. Um, so that way we can open up these resource centers back open and really start driving people back towards the resources that are available because they didn't shut down necessarily. They just weren't doing face to face, but that makes it very hard for um, especially people that need that tangible interaction. Um, you know, it works if you're emailing or you have a phone, but what about our homeless individuals that don't have that? So that, that we, we were kind of in a jam. How do we help them? Where can we send them? You know, um, what resources are still open and running and available, um, but then also having to take into account the COVID issue, because that was a big problem for, I think, the whole nation, but we saw it really badly here in Las Vegas too. And now we know a lot of people have lost their jobs because of the pandemic. And, you know, since oh it started or since the pandemic or due to the pandemic, has there been a change in the number of or demographics of homeless individuals? Um, in the area of your I don't know that they've actually done, um, you know, actually charted this in any way or they went out and did a count. They usually do a count right when they do the census, you know, um, and they do include that population that's experiencing homelessness. They're a part of that census as well. Um, and so they have a team of people that go out. I'm not sure if the number changed um, so drastically to the point where it was like, oh my gosh, we have way more homeless people now than we did before because homelessness has always been an issue. Um, it's one of those things where it's, I don't think there's a cure for it. You know, this isn't something where we can put a bandaid over or take a pill and it goes away and everybody gets better. It's, this is something that we constantly as a community, um, as, as a society, we have to continue to work at. Um, I would say that we definitely saw an influx in individuals needing more resources and more help. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that too is with uh, mental instability. We saw a lot of people needing that mental help or that mental check-in, you know, having somebody come and check on them. And we saw a lot of that. I think mental health really skyrocketed here in Las Vegas. Um, we saw a lot of it on the law enforcement side, like um, the calls our officers were responding to. And it wasn't necessarily, and when I say mental health, I don't mean, you know, somebody who is saying they want to kill themselves. Although we do get those suicidal ideation calls, it was more of just people really struggling with the pandemic. And um, a lot of those calls were, they were losing their loved ones to the pandemic and they didn't know how to respond to that. We had students that were stranded here from other countries that couldn't go back home. Um, you know, so they were kind of experiencing some of that mental 
mental health crisis. You know, how do I, I can't go see my family, but I don't have family here. And with the school shutting down, we had to change how we operated too. Um, you know, limiting people coming in and out of the buildings, the way we disinfected the buildings um, and things like that, doing our own uh, PPE gear. Um, you know, when we come in contact with all calls for service, you know, that's changed. I mean, especially for law enforcement, every call of service now we're wearing a mask. You know, and so that's changed drastically. But I will say that with the homeless community, I don't think we here on the university properties got to see a big part of that here on our campuses because all of our buildings were shut down. So instead, we started seeing it more on the surrounding streets surrounding our campuses because before that, when the campuses were open to the public, a lot of our community members that, you know, were residentially challenged, they could come onto the campus, they could eat in, you know, they would, if they panhandled or they got, you know, money from wherever, they could come in and they utilize the services like our rec center. They, a lot of them utilized the rec center as a place to shower and wash their clothes and work out, um, you know, and then they would go into our student unions and grab a bite to eat. Well, when that all closed down because we shut down as a university to protect, you know, the faculty, staff and students, we didn't see some of those individuals anymore. And a lot of these people we had ongoing relationships with, um, they were, they're a huge part of our community, but we knew them on a first name basis. And so now we haven't seen them for, you know, going on a year now. And it's like, well, where did they go? Are they okay? And it's, it's interesting coming from a law enforcement standpoint, because you think, oh, if they're not here, they're not a problem anymore. Um, and I think that's such a, like, a. I, won't, I don't want to use the word horrible, but that's the word that kind of, it's such a horrible way to think of a human being in that way that I don't see them anymore. So they're no longer a problem for the university. But in fact, a lot of our police officers, our patrol officers that are on duty, they actually are concerned about these individuals because they have ongoing friendships with these people. They see them every day. They know them by name. They ask them how they're doing. They ask them, you know, if they've eaten today, if they need water today, if they've got access to a bus pass. So our officers have built relationships with these individuals, both faculty, staff, and students, and our community members. And so to not see them on campus anymore, it was a huge blow for our patrol level officers as well to not see their friends in the community anymore. And so I think we saw less of it on campus, but you started to recognize more of it on the streets surrounding the campuses for sure. Right, and in any law enforcement officer, no matter where, if it's at a university, you want them to care about the well-being of people, not thinking of, you want to help them and not be like, okay, I'm glad they're not my problem, my issue right. anymore. Yeah, and it's the kind of solving I, the problem. Yeah, it's not solving it. And I kind of, uh, you know, when I thought about homelessness like years ago, you know, we would see like certain people where they migrate throughout the valley. Because the Vegas Valley, I mean, people don't realize how big it is. We're like in this big bowl, I like to call it, in the middle of the desert. And it goes, you know, from north to south and east to west. And you would see people kind of migrate throughout the seasons and they kind of move around the community. Um, but it was this idea of, okay, if we're enforcing stuff here for homelessness, we're enforcing, you know, no sleeping and, and you can't have your stuff laid out and all these laws, they just pack up and move somewhere else. And then they're there until the next agency enforces and then they move back. So it was this constant like passing people off. And I think that was one of, you know, the main focuses too of when we come in contact with these people, it's not necessarily about making them go away or getting rid of them off of our campuses. It was 
how do we help them better themselves and what resources maybe they know about or they don't know how to you know get in contact with so that we're not just passing them from agency to agency because they're crossing over the city limit lines they're going from you know las vegas to henderson or henderson to north it's how do we get them the resources they need so we're not bouncing them around through the system um what can we do differently when we come in contact with these people and a lot of the people we come in contact with i mean they enjoy the lifestyle they have, which I think most people find shocking. They're like, wait, you want to be homeless? And it, I think it's not necessarily they want to be homeless, but they like the simplicity of the lifestyle. You know, maybe there are certain things that are much harder for them to gain access to, but a lot of them, they have no problems living on the street. It is a very simple life. They're very set in their ways and they're comfortable with that lifestyle. So those people, we don't necessarily, it's not about changing their mind. It's just making sure that they do have access to the resources that are available when they're ready to take them or accept them. So, but we, we saw that a lot too. And so what are your, what are your campuses like now? Are students back? Is it shut down? Is it hybrid? So we kind of have like a hybrid schedule, like we're in spring of 2021. So we're nowhere near what it looked like before COVID. Um, our campuses are still pretty meek. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing a lot more people walking around now. Um, they've changed some of the policies on all the campuses. It's required that you're wearing a mask in any public place, whether indoors or outdoors. Um, they also have asked students not to smoke or use their e-cigarettes so that they can continue wearing masks and social distancing. So we're not seeing that huge population that we saw just walking through our campuses every day, which for us is really sad because we've built relationships with all these students as well. They're, they're a part of our families in a way. Um, and so not having them around is, it's, it's kind of sad for us because a big part of what we do is community policing. It's all about just talking to people and learning about why they're coming to school and building these relationships, talking to that professor you've never met before that teaches, you know, some mathematic class that you're probably never going to take, but, you know, you work in this setting with them. And so we're not seeing a lot of students, faculty and staff on campuses due to the hybrid learning. Um, which also means that our community members that are residentially challenged aren't here either. Um, that doesn't mean that they're completely gone. Um, now with 2021, we're actually seeing more of them come back onto campus and kind of just sit in the grassy areas on campus or in the shaded areas. And it's really nice in Vegas right now, so I don't blame them at all. I want to be out there with them. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of that happening right now where they're maybe just coming to nap on the grass or, you know, sit at one of our benches in the middle of one of our campuses that's located here in town. And so we're seeing that, but it's nowhere near what it was before the pandemic. It's, it's definitely, it's still just empty. It's very empty. So you had mentioned previously that um, a lot of individuals who were homeless that are non-student population have used your facilities for bathrooms and stuff. Have you been able to open that back up in any capacity? So like, have you seen anyone else coming back to campus that was there regularly last year? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, most of the campuses have kind of limited the individuals coming in and out of the buildings to faculty, staff, and students due to 
the COVID reason, right? We want to protect the people that are coming to school here. We also want to protect the community members, even if they're not students, faculty, and staff. We want to protect them too so that they're not exposed unnecessarily to COVID. So right now, most of our buildings and our common areas have a they have a capacity level. So even our classrooms, like, you know, they had to go down to X number of students. If it was a, a building and a classroom that normally could hold maybe 50 students, maybe they're only taking 12, you know? And so with that being said, we're not allowing people into the buildings, but we're not stopping them either, if you catch my drift. So we're not telling them that they're not welcome here because the campus is open to the public. We are a public school. All, of, all four of our universities are open to the public. So we're not telling them they can't be here, but we are limiting them going into certain spaces, especially where the students are convening in classrooms and teachers and faculty members are, just because we want to try to eliminate anybody unnecessarily coming in contact with somebody with COVID or possibly spreading it, you know, without knowing, because that's always a possibility as well. Um, so we were kind of- Because you put, if you put limitations in place to protect someone else, there's a possibility of, you know, Exactly. Not necessarily harming someone, but even with schools, for example, with K through 12 schools, and they don't want to open up the schools because they don't want kids to bring it home to elderly relatives. Right. But at the same time, you're hurting the students in a lot of ways by them not being in. So it's, I don't envy these decisions being made by any campus safety or security. Oh, leaders. yeah. I'm glad that, I, I mean, I'm really glad that I don't have to make those decisions because like you said, that is such a tough decision. You know, our campuses are very public. We want people to come here. We have beautiful campuses and we have campuses in Henderson, in the middle of the Valley in Las Vegas, and then in North Las Vegas. And we, our campuses are so beautiful that people sometimes just come here to find a tree and read a book. And so we don't want to like tell people they can't be here, right? But we also want to be mindful that we still have students living on campuses because we now, um, back in September of 2020 um, at Nevada State, our dormitories opened out there. And so we actually have students living in the dorms there as well as UNLV. And so we have to be mindful of those students too because we do need to protect them as much as possible. And they're kind of counting on us for that protection. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure that people know that they can come and visit our campuses and sit under a tree and walk through the beautiful campuses and see what the campus has to offer, whether they're a student or not, you know, and so I think it, we're being, it's, it's very limited to how people are coming in and out of the buildings. Um, most of the buildings, not all of them, but on certain campuses, they're making them do temperature checks, which I think is amazing. Um, here at the headquarters building, when we come in the building, we have required to do a temperature check. And if we're sitting like in this room, if there was other people in here, I'd be required to wear my mask. And you had said how your unit helps serve both students and non-student populations who are struggling with homelessness. Um, what are some ways the pandemic has affected specifically the student population that is experiencing homelessness? And what are some remedies that have been put in place by your department to help support them? And I know you had said, obviously there are limitations due to the pandemic, but has there been any way to be able to work around that or help them in any other way? So luckily we have amazing institutions that, I mean, they jumped in feet first, not even knowing what to, they were getting into because when the pandemic first happened, you know, they were shutting down airlines too. So even though we had international students, we had like 
in-state students as well that couldn't get home. We had students that literally lived in California that couldn't get home. Um, and so it was interesting how all the universities kind of jumped in to help those students. And as a law enforcement agency, our role is just to be very supportive of whatever the students needed from us. So a lot of that was just checking in like, if I have a roommate who's living next door and they're from New York and I'm from Texas and I want them to wear a mask and, you know, they have these state wars going on in the dormitories, how do we police that? And it was more of just being mutually respectful of the other person. Um, I know in the dorms, it's a little different than probably just living off campus. Um, so we didn't really see too many issues with our students that were living off campus that needed a lot of help with homelessness. I mean, Thankfully, they had the rules and regulations put into place where they weren't evicting people, which I think was really, really awesome for them to do. Um, the stimulus checks, they may have helped some people where they didn't help others, but they had that cushion there where they knew, okay, I'm not going to lose my home today. Um, I think we're going to start to see a shift in that, though, now moving into 2021, where things are starting to open back up, and they're expecting people to go back work, and they're expecting people to pay their bills. Well, people haven't worked for a year. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who have um, spouses or significant others or older children or older parents or grandparents living at home that couldn't work for the past year. Um, you know, and law enforcement was, you know, we weren't exempt for that. We have spouses and significant others that got laid off or got terminated or, you know, due to COVID, maybe their job shut down. And so we didn't see a lot of homelessness, I think, with our students that were living off campus necessarily. Um, but it was a real fear for the students that maybe were international or for the ones that couldn't get plane tickets home for whatever reason, especially when the airlines were shut down or maybe they didn't have a way to afford a place, you know, a, a plane ticket or a bus you know, pass to get home. And so I think the universities kind of jumped in feet first, like I was saying, not thinking about it, going, what do we need to do to support our students so they're not homeless? And so they did put some stuff in place in the dorms here where they extended students staying on campus. They tried to, you know, those that were able to go home, that could go home, that had places to go, go home because we don't know how long this lockdown is going to be and that's safer for you to be there. Um, and, and they did some really interesting things here with the dorms, which I just loved. Um, we, had, we have a reserve officer team as well, so part-time officers that work for UNLV. And one of our officers here works for Parks Police. He works for the state's Parks Police. And they shut down all the state parks too. So they actually have like some, like um, I guess you would call them like mini convenience stores at some of their parks locations. And so they had all this food and sandwiches and yogurt and juices that were gonna expire. There's nowhere to send it. There's people not visiting the parks, so the parks are shut down. And so what the state's parks police did through our officer, who um, is one of our part-time, is they donated all of that food to our residential dorms. So our students who maybe didn't have the funds to go get food off campus, because now they're not just experiencing homelessness, they're experiencing you know food insecurity. We were able to provide that to them. Um, and then they, they did some cool meal plans where they were making sure students got fed. Um, they had some dorms where they actually had a specific dorm for those students that were infected with COVID. They could move into a COVID dorm or a sick dorm, if you will, and they separated those students and kind of spread them out. So I think they did a fantastic job of just implementing all of those things and working really fast with short notice and kind of like on a whim, like we're going to throw this out there and, you know, throw it at the wall and see what sticks kind of deal. 
um, and a lot of it stuck and it worked amazingly. And we didn't see a lot of the homelessness, if you will, in our students, um, which I was very grateful of um, because where, where are we going to put them? Where are they going to go right now? All of, if you think about it, not all the shelters are full because they're never full because some people don't want to live there, but trying to send a student who's, you know, in the middle of going to school, who's now in a hybrid schedule to go live at a shelter and still think they're going to be able to keep up with their studies. It just wouldn't have worked. Um, going to college is tough as it is, let alone during a pandemic. You know, and so we we were grateful enough to not see a huge influx in student homelessness. Um, and I mean, if they are, if there were more, they didn't come forward. Um, maybe they found other means to deal with whatever they were experiencing. But we had a very small amount, and those students that did come forward, we were able to get them either housing here on campus, or we were able to find them like housing vouchers um, where they weren't being evicted from their apartments, which was awesome. And you had mentioned last time we spoke and then also at the beginning of our chat today that uh, one of the unit's primary goals is to connect the homeless population with resources they either don't realize are available or are struggling to access. Have any of those resources previously relied on by either, I guess we already covered students, we can say non-students, um, become inaccessible because of the pandemic and how has that been handled? How do you work around that? I don't necessarily know if they've been inaccessible um, to the extent where they couldn't find a way of getting it. Um, but at one point when everything did shut down due to the governor's order of shutting everything down, you know, staying home for those X amount of days, those weeks where there was like barely any cars on the road. It kind of looked like one of those old movies where it's just desolate and there's, you're like, okay, where am I? Is this like the zombie apocalypse? It was like nothing, like no cars. So when you did see a car, you're like, oh, there's a car. I wonder where that person's going. Um, so I think there was a lot of resources that not necessarily they couldn't get to them. It's just nothing was opened at that point in time. And so that kind of changed how we got those folks to where they needed to go because we weren't sure where to send them. Um, you know, a lot of people were already waiting on the housing list. They have a housing list out here where people are enrolled into getting permanent housing and getting Medicaid and those kinds of things. So those things were still operational, but on an online basis, well, the public libraries were closed. So it was like, how do we get these people to these resources that they need? So a lot of it was them figuring out maybe finding a friend that had a cell phone or a computer or, you know, sometimes they would come here because we had the free Wi-Fi. They would log into the Wi-Fi, you know, just sit on one of the benches and log into Wi-Fi if they, if they did have a computer or a tablet or a cell phone where they could, you know, utilize that system and then log in themselves. Um, we did a lot more phone calling than I think we did in the past um, in 2019. We did way more phone calls in 2020. Just trying to find out, well, who's open? Who has a bed? Where can I send this person? Um, you know, this person needs a bus pass. How did they get one? Okay, that facility shut down. Oh, they're not doing bus passes because COVID. They shut down Greyhound. Okay, well, where do we put this person? Where do we send this person? And then it was, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do is getting people into maybe some type of rehab. Well, even those facilities were on lockdown too, or they weren't accepting people unless it was a dire need because they didn't have the beds, they didn't have the room. Everybody was trying to find somewhere to go at that time. And so we were kind of doing the same thing, making calls of figuring out, well, who had an open bed and how do we get people to these areas? 
A lot of the individuals we deal with don't want to go to the shelters, though. I do need to make a note of that. When we bring up shelters, it's I, I, I guess it's kind of taboo for the homeless community. When you say shelter, it's like a dirty word to them. Don't tell them they have to go to a shelter. When you bring up, like, I want to help you get into long-term housing, that's a little different. And they do have that here. The only caveat to that is they do have to be on a list for that. They have to do all the things that are required by the housing authority out here in order to get on long-term housing. And they have their own checklists and different things. So depending on where you're at in your walk of life, you know, some are more dire need due to health conditions than others. Um, and so those people may get moved up on the list a lot faster because of their health condition or, you know, whether it's diabetes or cancer, whatever it is that they are experiencing in their life, those people with a higher risk are going to get housing first. And I think during COVID, I don't think that list should have been monitored maybe the same way because everybody was dire need. Everybody was scared of getting COVID. Everybody was scared of contracting this virus and dying or giving it to somebody they care about and watching that person suffer or die because the death rate went up. You know, we don't talk about the flu very much, but millions of people die every year from the flu. And they give you this vaccine and there's how many different strands of the flu and they go, hmm, I think this year there's going to be, you know, six and eight are going to be the hot ones for this year. And then you get that vaccine and you still get the flu. So that's kind of how COVID was. It was like, there's so many people that maybe you had it, maybe you didn't. You had symptoms or you didn't have symptoms and nobody knew. And they had this housing list that at that point in time, I don't think they could have followed it because everybody needed a place to go. Um, and that's kind of what we saw from, and, and it was just me in 2020. So coming in contact with some of the individuals I did, it wasn't necessarily of, hey, can you find me long-term housing? Because they knew that this list was kind of, at this point, it was on hold, but where can I go lay my head down for a night? Do you know a shelter that has a bed or where can I just get a hot meal? And there was plenty of times where it wasn't where I could send them to get a hot meal. It was more of a, look, I don't know where you're going to get your next hot meal from because I don't know how many, you know, hot meals Catholic Charities has today or, you know, the resource center has and they're giving out. They might have hit their capacity for today. So let me just go buy you one. And I kind of did that quite a bit in 2020. I mean, my husband reminded me, I'd come home and he goes, so you ate like five times today. I'm like, no, no, I brought lunch, but I saw this person and this person. And, oh, do you remember last year when I told you about this guy, he and I are kind of friends. Well, I saw him today and he was hungry and he was like, okay, you know, that's just you. That's how you're going to be. I'm like, you know, I kind of planned for that and everybody was struggling. So I just kind of saw it as it's not necessarily like whether or not I can get this person a meal or not, it was this person needed a meal and I'm in a position to at least provide that to them. I can't get them on the housing list. I'm not gonna be able to find them long-term housing. A lot of the resource centers are closed. A lot of the places that are doing hot meals are being very cautious of how they're doing it because of COVID. So if all they need is a hot meal and that's what they're telling me they need right now, well, I'm in a position to provide that to them. So, you know, I'm going to just do that because that's what they're needing right then and there. And a lot of what we do is getting them what they need right then when they're willing to accept it. Cause there are some people that are very prideful about buying them a meal. You'd be shocked. A lot of people are hungry, but you offer to buy them a meal. A lot of people turn it down, which is shocking because you're like, aren't you hungry? Well, yeah, but, accepting that means something different to the homeless community. You know, it's it, in some 
depending on what group you're in, because they're, you know, little sublets of communities out there in the homeless community, that could be seen as weakness. Like you don't accept that, you know, you, you go panhandle and that's your form of work and then you buy your own meal. So there were some that didn't accept it, but those that did, oh, I was purchasing meals left and right. And I don't mind. And I think there was a couple of times I brought some extra stuff from home and my husband would go to the grocery store and I'd say, hey, look, you're going to have to do another grocery run because I took all the snacks with me to work the pass out. So, and we had uh, law enforcement officers here on our patrol level that um, were doing that. We had um, two of our new officers that just graduated field training during Christmas. Um, they were like, there's nothing we can do. We don't know how to get people into housing. We don't know how to get people off the street. A lot of people are down, you know, due to COVID. They just took it upon themselves and went and bought, I mean, it sounds silly, but they went and bought hot chocolate and snacks for like everybody they came in contact with. And it was just one of those things that you hear that story and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool that that officer bought hot chocolate, but it's just hot chocolate. But in that moment, they're doing something for the community that most people don't realize they're doing. They're bridging that gap. They're making a friend. And now when these two officers are out on shift, doesn't matter who goes out there. Somebody's going, hey, I remember those officers from university police that bought me hot chocolate on a cold day. You know, I didn't have anywhere to go, but they bought me hot chocolate. And it sounds trivial and something so small, but it, it, it really does mean a great deal to those individuals that take it that way. So it was pretty cool to see that. Right. And a lot of people, for whatever reason, uh, their background or their experiences, they, they see law enforcement and they think that they're not there to help. And so oh, just yeah. going, doing something so small like that can change someone's perspective in such a big way. Absolutely. And I think in 2020, like across the nation, especially in law enforcement, we saw this huge change, not just for homelessness, but you know, with all of the protests that were going on and the rioting in some areas, that changed how we did policing across the board. It's the community, that's who you work for, right? You should understand how to do that. But you'd be surprised how many people don't understand what that core value actually means of being a community police officer. And for, for us here, because I'm the training sergeant as well, I oversee all of the new officers. So I actually meet them when they first get hired and sign their life away to UPD. And then they spend two weeks with me before they go to the academy. So they do an, like a pre-academy. They spend five and a half months in a academy course. Then they come back and spend a month with me in what we call advanced academy or departmental training. And one of the things that we kind of impress upon them is that we are peace officers. And our title actually says peace officer, not police officer. And that's our main focus is community and keeping the peace and being a part of that community that we serve and being civil servants. And so we kind of drive that idea home. And because we are in an area where most of our campuses sit that is highly populated with the homeless community, it's so much easier to kind of show them what that means when we go out there, when they're in field training, when we just take them a, literally from where our department headquarters sits to across the street at UNLV, we can show them what it means to be community police officers because we're going to come across somebody. We're going to run into somebody we've either helped in the community or maybe needs help. Um, and so I, I kind of like how we've not necessarily gotten away from that for us, but we've kind of put it more on a pedestal that we are civil servants and we're about the community and we're about protecting and serving and peace officer first before enforcement and community first before ourselves. And um, I will say law enforcement is a very selfless job. You, you, 
you have to put others before yourself and it doesn't matter what their walk of life is. It's so important that you have that in the forefront of your mind that I got into this career to serve others and it's, it's gotta be a servant's job. That's what you're in this career for. Right. And if you're no longer in that mentality, then I think time to go. go. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. If you're not here to serve the community, this is definitely not the career for you because this is what we chose to do. We, we literally chose to be a civil servant of the community, to protect and serve, to be, and we wear so many different hats. It's amazing. I, there's a video I show to um, our officers before they start field training. And it actually talks about like what law enforcement officers actually are. And there's um, a couple different officers that pop up in this video and they talk about how, you know, they're life coaches and their relationship advisors and they're helping somebody else co-parent kids that they've never even met, you know, cause we get parents that pop in here with their naughty kids and we're like, Hey, you know, how can we help? And you wear all these different hats. You're a teacher and you're, you know, you're maybe a friend to somebody who you've never met before, but you wear all these different hats. And, and so I think, you know, in 2020 specifically, it, there was this line drawn in the sand between us and them, people who wore a badge and those that didn't. And that for me was really hard to, and I'm sure for many of the officers here at University PD, because we didn't see ourselves that way as us versus them. We saw it as we're people in the community, how can we help? And so um, I, I really want to see us get back to that in 2021. I want to see, you know, that line get blurred again, where it's not so hard in the sand, where it's an us versus them thing, because there are a lot of really good police officers that put on this badge every day, that put on their uniform, and they, they go out into the world to be civil servants of their communities. And a lot of times that gets tainted by those that make, you know, wrong choices. And now jumping back to pandemic related content, I just, have you um, spoken to any idea in your state, um, the process for helping homeless individuals have access to vaccines as from whatever phase they're in? Um, do Do you know how that's working in your area? So I'm not sure how they're going to do it out here. I know at one point they were doing, so it started with essential employees across the U.S. and it was the same here in Nevada. It started with those that were healthcare workers, firefighters, paramedics, you know, law enforcement. Um, And then the idea was, okay, well, who else is essential? And um, I had gotten to an interesting conversation with a lady who um, was a teacher and she says, well, I'm essential. I have to go back to work on this hybrid schedule and be in a room with 30 students that come from 30 different households. And maybe you're cutting that in half. So it's only 15 students, but I'm still being exposed to all 15 of them. And I thought, huh, yeah, they're essential as well. So um, I think it's an interesting thing of them trying to figure out, well, what does that word essential actually mean anymore? Because now we're opening things back up and we're you know, sending our kids back to school on these hybrid schedules, which start next week. Um, so there will be some in-person classes similar to here at UNLV. Um, and they're, they're restricting how many students are coming in. But then where does that leave our homeless population? Like they're a part of this community too. Maybe not essential in in the terms of the word essential, but they're still human beings. They're part of this community. How do we get them that vaccine? And I think it's just, they're probably gonna be, in my opinion, lumped in where they go, okay, all the essential people got their vaccines, great. Now let's give it to everybody. Like we do the flu shot. Anybody can get the flu shot. Anybody should be able to get the COVID vaccine. 
um, in my opinion, it shouldn't matter. Um, there's a lot of people who are essential that maybe didn't want the vaccine or chose not to take it. Okay, well, if they chose not to or didn't want to for whatever their personal choice was, that means that's one more vaccine that could go to somebody else who does want to take it for whatever their reasons are. Because I think a lot of people kind of forget the fact that you know, because the homeless people are out living on the street that they can't get it, they get COVID too. They're not exempt from getting COVID because they're homeless, you know, or they're, they're, you know, lacking in whatever it is, whether it's food insecurity, shelter, you know, clothing, whatever the case may be, they're still at a risk because they come in contact with people as well. They have their own homeless communities that they're coming in contact with those people that are bouncing around and moving throughout the state. And so they need the vaccine just as well as anybody else. I'm not sure, and I wish I did know what they're going to do for everybody um, to get the vaccine. But in my opinion, I imagine that whether you're homeless or you're not homeless, when they decide to open it up for everybody, everybody will be welcome to get it. I think they just need to move a little faster. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm in, I'm in Massachusetts and I feel like a big barrier that I've noticed for a lot of different groups of people is access to, to, to technology in order to sign up to get the vaccine. So for here, I think we're in a phase where it's 75. We already did essential workers or offered it to law enforcement um, and doctors and nurses and so forth. And now that we're in the 75 and over, they didn't, Massachusetts, I like to think that they're smarter than this, but they didn't have, they didn't implement a, a phone line for these, like, for example, for elderly people who aren't great with technology or don't even have access to it whatsoever. And I yeah. imagine that could be a barrier for some homeless individuals as well, if they're forced to sign up for a vaccine. Yeah. yeah, so currently right now, we actually have three vaccination sites running on three of our different university properties. Um, and of course, it started with the essential employees. They sent, you know, anybody essential, you had to do this sign up thing. And then the, you know, 75 and older. And I think then they dropped it down to 70 and older. Um, and now they're actually working towards, you know, now that most people who either had the first round got the second round. Okay. Who else, you know, wants to sign up and get it? And at some point, they're probably going to open up this vaccine site to everybody where it doesn't matter who you are, come in and get one. Um, I think right now, in my opinion, the way that they're doing it now works for those that have that access to cell phones and computer and internet. Or like you were saying, there are some people who just are, I, I'm technology broken. I, I had to figure out how to do the Zoom thing with you today. So there's those individuals like me that maybe just are not up on their technology and don't know how to do that. Well, how, that doesn't mean they shouldn't get the vaccine. You know, uh, maybe they're watching it on their news and they go, oh, I know where that site is located and drive down there or walk down there, or take a cab or a bus or whatever their means of transportation is, but they still should be able to get the vaccine just because they didn't sign up online. And so I think they're going to have to figure something like that out here, especially in Nevada, because we do have a very large homeless population and we have a lot of homeless vets. We have a ton of homeless vets living here. And I guess if there is anyone listening to this that wants to help the homeless population in some way during their pandemic, do you have recommendations for how someone could go about doing that and just to be helpful? Yeah, I would reach out to some of the community-based organizations um, and maybe actually asking that person what type of resources they're looking for, because that's a good baseline question to ask. What type of resources can I assist you in locating or finding or helping you with? Because sometimes 
you know, you're not sure where, what direction to send them. But if you know what it is that maybe they're looking for, or maybe they can help you understand a little bit better of what it is they're looking for, then you can better direct them because there's different groups for different things, especially here. I mean, that's probably nationwide. They have different groups that do different things. Like we have, you know, a, a community-based organization that is specific to our juveniles. You know, we have homeless juvies out here. So I wouldn't necessarily send them to one that's geared for adults. So knowing what they need, I think, is a huge thing. So first finding out what that person needs and then directing them to those different groups. And if you don't know, there's so many resources online. Here at UPD, all of our officers carry around resource cards that we've made, um, and we're revamping that. We check it every year to see if there's something new we need to add. Um, you literally can call 311, call any of the law enforcement agencies. So wherever you're at in the Valley, if you dial 311 and say, hey, this is what, I, how can I get in contact with housing? How can I get in contact with someone, you know, who um, maybe is experiencing food insecurity? They have food banks across the valley. So if you're just unsure and you, and you have access to the internet, that's a great place to look um, once you find out what they're looking for or dialing 311, the non-emergency line and saying, hey, look, I'm with an individual that is in need of assistance. This is what they're looking for. Where can I take them? Or where can I, you know, direct them to go. Because um, a lot of people just don't know where to send people. And that's the big thing. Where do I send people? Um, I know on our website, we have a couple of things listed on there. And then you can always call our dispatch as well. And we and we actually put that out to our campus communities that if you run across somebody on sitting on the campus or even off campus, you can always call our dispatch. We'll come out, we'll talk to them. Um, or our dispatch can tell you where to take somebody if it's a hot meal, if it's a shower, if it's shelter. Um, maybe they're looking for clothing, maybe, you know, depending on what it is they're looking for, but knowing first what they're looking for or, or maybe what their goal is, like some people, they know specifically what they want. Others, they're like, I don't know, I need everything. Um, so if it's an, I don't know, I need everything, I definitely say take them to the impact center. It's located on Royal Crest. But if it's, I don't know where to send them, I don't know what I need, a good place to start is trying to figure that out first. And a lot of people will tell you if you ask them. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. You oh, yeah, absolutely. a lot on your plate uh, <laughs> with work and I'm sure with your personal life as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, yeah, absolutely. I know the last time we had talked, um, you had said something really cute. I want to say your, your son had, uh, there was someone at school who was struggling with food insecurity and he packed two lunches for like a week. <laughs> Yeah. So whatever you're doing is rubbing off on your children too, which so that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I hope they all stay in that uh, that giving servant's heart mindset, and we try to you know we try to impress that upon them. But I want them to be free to make their own choices. So it's pretty cool as a parent when you see your child make that choice on their own without being told. So it kind of like you know add one to the mom tally. I did good today. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah.